Thanksgiving weekend is an opportunity to express thanks, to be grateful for what we have. Uh, and one of the things that I am most thankful for right at the moment is that our family has entered that stage where one of my children is learning to drive. And, and I'm thankful because my prayer life has grown tremendously. Now, I say that, of course, tongue-in-cheek. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating experience because while I am driving, it is becoming acutely aware to me that my children, and your children as well, do not learn to drive when they get their L. They learn to drive when they're toddlers and they watch you drive, and they listen to you in the car. And so now, as my child at 16 is lear learning, I'm noticing how I drive. And I've realized I've got a lot of work to do in my driving styles. I've always assumed, like most of you, that I'm an above-average driver. But apparently, the street signs, the speed limits, all of those things apply to me as to much as to anyone else. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by this journey of teaching. And I realize that actually what I'm doing with my child, it's a form of discipleship. It's a process of discipleship. I'm trying to take a child who does not know how to drive and to help them put the theoretical knowledge from their written test into practice, and what does it look like to practice and to go out onto the road and to be able to get to that point where my child will be able to drive without me in the car. It's a process of discipleship. You know, as I read through Scripture, particularly as we journey right now through the book of Acts, I realize this is what discipleship is for each one of us. It's reading through the theory. It's reading through the Word, looking at what the Word says, and realizing that all too often we don't do that. And so we have the examples of the apostles. We have the examples of the early church, particularly in the book of Acts. And we kind of hold together and we go, how do I compare and how should I live in response? What should I do in response? This is what discipleship is. Discipleship for you and I is not only becoming like Jesus. It's not only looking at the examples and going, okay, there's some areas I need to work on. It's realizing that we also then help pass that on. We help teach others. We help disciple others. This is what I love about the book of Acts. It's a process of discipleship for every one of us to grow, to become more like Christ. You know, this morning as we continue this series that we've called The Gospel on the Ground, having a look at how the gospel explodes in Jerusalem and by the power of the Holy Spirit spreads throughout the known world and how we now some 2,000 years later are a product of that gospel on the ground, but we're not the end point, we're a continuation of that journey, taking the gospel into all the world. 
Of course, we cannot possibly go through the book of Acts verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the whole way. We would be here for a couple of years if we try to do that. And so every now and then we kind of move pretty quickly and then we pause and then we move again. So before we dive into our passage this morning, I want to kind of summarize chapter 1 through 8. You don't have to take notes if you, if you want to. I mean, you can jot down as you're going, but I want to summarize very briefly chapters 1 to 8 before we dive into a little section in there. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 26, which we touched on a couple of weeks ago, that's the, the period after the resurrection of Christ. So if you think of the Gospel of Luke, Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote the book of Acts. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke writes about what Jesus has done. And in Acts, he's writing about what the church does, what the apostles do, what the disciples, enabled by the Holy Spirit, do. So in Acts chapter 1, we have this transition period. It's after Christ has been crucified and resurrected, but before he ascends back to the throne. And there's this period where Jesus continues to teach. He continues to instruct, and he continues to impart knowledge. And then just before he ascends back to the throne, he tells that early group of apostles and disciples, he says, wait in Jerusalem, pray until I send my... Sorry, I don't know, ADD. You all heard that noise as well, I hope. And so Jesus says, pray and wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's that key verse, chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And so then we move into Acts chapter 2, and this is exactly what happens. The early church, they're not yet a church, but the early community are gathered together, they're praying, they're waiting, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they begin to speak in all the languages of the people in Jerusalem. And this was just God's incredible movement, because God's told these disciples that you need to take the gospel to the ends of the world, but I'm going to help you by bringing the ends of the world into Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and as they're there for the celebration and for the feast, so you will then get to be able to preach to them. And they will go off. And so they hear the gospel in their own language. And Peter gets up and preaches the sermon. And 3,000 people are added to the church in one day. I pray daily for the gift to be able to preach like that. That was a sermon on fire. And so Peter preaches. And, and they begin to witness to Jesus Christ. And then we go into Acts chapter 3, verse 1, through to 4, verse 31, where we start to see the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit works through the followers of Christ. And particularly, we looked at Peter and John, how they simply witness. They simply say, you know, we've got nothing to give you, especially for that lame individual. We can't give you anything. The only thing we have is Jesus Christ. And we're going to proclaim Christ. And in the proclamation of Christ, so God moves in miraculous ways. And there's that key verse in that portion. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, we're in the middle of preaching and against the threats against them. They simply say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And then from Acts chapter 4 at about verse 32 through to the end of Acts chapter 8, sorry, the end of Acts chapter 7, we see this repeat 
It's almost like a repeat cycle. Again, there's the miraculous workings of the Holy Spirit through the disciples. There's persecution. There's opposition. There are these images of the church growing. And as the church grows, of course, that creates its own challenges and their needs for leadership, their needs for those who serve and who help out. And, and so God provides through that. And again, persecution increases, but it's, it's no longer kind of just opposition. Vocally, now we start to see disciples jailed, disciples flogged. But yet, even in the midst of it, I love the fact that in the midst of being jailed and being flogged, so the disciples praise God. They're thankful that they were counted worthy of being persecuted. They're thankful for this, and, and so they, they keep going, and they pray for strength, and they preach into it. And then at the end of Acts chapter 7, beginning of Acts chapter 3, we see this image of Stephen, who in his, in his preaching, in his proclaiming, he so offends the Pharisees and the Jews, and they accuse him of blasphemy that they end up stoning him. And as they stone him, we read in Acts chapter 3, the begin, Acts chapter 8, verse 3, uh, we read that as they're stoning him, they lay their cloaks in front of a man named Saul. And we're going to touch on him in a couple of, of weeks. And so there's clearly tons of material in those seven to eight chapters. I could preach, as I said, multiple sermons. And we're just touching on the highlights. I hope, I encourage you, I challenge you, and I implore you, Read through the book of Acts. You will get far more out of it as we're journeying if you spend time reading and meditating on it and thinking about what it says to us. This morning, I want to have a look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32, through to Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And we're going to read it in a moment. If you are taking notes, uh, my title is A Good Example of a Bad One. which if you think about me talking about driving lessons earlier on, I am probably a good example of a bad one when it comes to that. The scriptures will be up on the screen as well, but if you have a Bible or if you've got a phone or anything like that, you're welcome to follow along. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 4, verse 32, 3 to 5, verse 11. Now all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales, and put it all at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. 
And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You know, as we, we read that, I'm aware that in church circles, at least for those who don't go to church, you maybe don't really know what happens in a community like this, there's that stereotyped cliche that the church only wants your money. And so when we get to a passage like this, it might be very easy to misconstrue it. And certainly uh, uh, an unscrupulous preacher might try and twist it in order to challenge and, and have people feel guilty about not giving to the church. And so I know when we read this, you might kind of go, okay, Brian's going to tell me I've got to go sell my land and give him the money so he can buy a private jet. <laughs> that is not what we're saying this morning. And that's not even what this passage of Scripture is saying. So this morning, I'm not going that direction. I'm, I want you to be at ease because I want you to understand what this passage of Scripture is really saying. Remember that the early Scriptures, as the apostles wrote, as the books that we have that form our Bible formed and came together, they did not have chapter numbers or verse numbers. That was only added many, many years later to make it easy to find places. And unfortunately, in so doing, I mean, it was really helpful, and I'm glad we did that, but sometimes we, we forget that it would have read as one story. And so that's exactly what takes place here. The end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 really are one story. And Luke is writing. Yes, he's telling of events that have taken place. But he's chosen deliberately to add this in so that any followers of Christ who would read in the future would have before them two examples. Two examples that existed in the church as one unified story of what would we be like? What should we act like? And actually, I love the fact that Luke has done this. Because so often when we read through the book of Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 2, when we read about the early church, you know, gathered together and they, they devoted themselves to teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, uh, and, and they spent together and, and anyone who had a need, somebody would sell and they would look after each other. And we look at that and we think, man, that early church must have been amazing. 
That early church must have been perfect. There was clearly nothing wrong with them. I want you to know the early church was terrible because it had people in it. And people will ruin everything. It's the way we operate. In fact, no church is perfect. If you ever visit a church and you go, this church is perfect, leave it because you will stuff it up. No church. And so Luke reminds us because he tells us about a church where there are people who get it wrong. And what happens in the middle of that? And Luke gives us this example of how we should behave. One is a good, honest example. It's the right thing to do. The other one is a good example of a bad one. We have two options before us. What will we choose? Who will we be like? How will we respond in this community of faith? On the one side, the good example that Luke gives to us first in Luke chapter in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37, we meet this honest, generous Christian by the name of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And as we read that portion, we're reminded that no one in the church, certainly in that time frame, sorry, Barnabas didn't think of his possessions as his possessions. He didn't think, hey, this stuff is mine, this land is mine, this money is mine. I can do with it what I want. He understood that everything he had came from God. Because he understood that's what the Scriptures taught. We read that in the Psalms. God owns everything. Paul is going to echo this later on in the New Testament, that everything comes from Christ, and everything is for Christ. Everything we have is entrusted to us by God. Man, how the church would be so different and its impact in the world would be so different if you and I learned more and more to live in that way. I was chatting with a guy just this past week. Uh, His car got written off when somebody crashed into it while it was parked in the street. And, And of course, I'm chatting to him, and when he tells me the story inwardly, I'm like, oh man, the car. How how do you survive? But he knew exactly who had done it because they hit the car and then rolled down the hill and left an oil mark all the way into their driveway. So he went down there and he knew them. And it turned out it was the daughter who had panicked and and was scared and, and understandably shaken and went home. And the father was embarrassed and the father was trying to profusely apologize until this gentleman said, how is your daughter. And of course, the father was a bit like, what do you mean? We're worried about the car. And he said, I don't care about the car. It's just a car. It's not a person. God gave us that car in the first place. We've used it to serve him. We've, we've given it to others. We've loaned it out. It's not, yeah, sure, my name's on the title, but it's not my car. Can you imagine how the world would be different if more and more of us had that view of our possessions, that's how Barnabas understood. Barnabas looked at the needs in the church, and Barnabas chose to sell land and to bring the proceeds and give it to the apostles to distribute. Now, it's very easy. We might read this, and we might think, okay, this is some weird sort of Christian socialism. This is some weird sense of Christian communism. That's not at all what's taking place here. That's not where the Bible is taking us. 
It's not about suddenly pooling everything together just because you know, we're communists, we're socialists, or whatever the case might be. No. It's about understanding that there are needs. And as the Holy Spirit convicts the individual, so the individual responds. That's why the scriptures in Acts chapter 2 and here in Acts chapter 4 echo, when some had need, some sold land, some brought in. Now, you and I live in a very different world. The economic system of our world operates very differently. You don't need to do that. What Barnabas teaches us is to look for opportunities to be generous and to be open-handed before God and before others. That's what he does. He comes in and, and he, he knows that there's need that he can respond to. And he gives in to that need. I believe a passage of Scripture like this should challenge us deeply when we look at something and go, this is mine. This is my car. This is my house. This is my whatever. No. It is simply entrusted to us by God. And God says, what will you do with what I've given to you? Barnabas understood everything comes from God. And he knew God would provide for his needs at some point, And so he could sell without losing sleep over that. Because he would receive from God. Oh, how we need to learn. And so Luke points out Barnabas. And, and I love the fact that as Luke's writing, and he's probably, you know, I'm, I'm going to give a bit of poetic license here, but he's writing and he's, he's excited and he's praising God for everything that's taken place, for everything he's seen and he's heard. And as he's writing, he, he talks about Barnabas, uh, but then he suddenly remembers, oh, wait, it wasn't only Barnabas who sold land. There's actually also this other couple. And their story is a little different. And so Luke holds in contrast Barnabas on this side and Ananias and Sapphira on this side. And if Barnabas is a generous, honest Christian, well, this couple are not. They're deceitful Christians. You see, here's a couple who saw what others were doing and no doubt, I mean, people are people. I have no doubts that as people came and sold and gave, others were so genuinely thankful that they praised God for those people and probably even spoke about them publicly. Probably said, you know what? I was down and out. I had nothing, and God provided for me because he, he spoke to Barnabas, and Barnabas listened, and Barnabas sold, and now I can live to see another day. So no doubt they heard this. And it's clear that they want some of that as well. They also want to be praised. And after all, who doesn't want some praise? Who doesn't want to be publicly noticed and acknowledged? Except the problem is the good work they're doing is only about their appearance. It's only about what they look like to other people. Because just like Barnabas, they take a field, they sell it, and then they lie about the amount they're bringing in. Ananias and Sapphira colluded and decided we're going to keep a little bit back for ourselves just because we're a little scared. Maybe we don't trust God as much. But we're going to say that it's everything because we want people to think we're just as generous 
And we want people to think that we're amazing and we're awesome. We want to appear in a certain way. But as we all know, appearance can be deceiving. Most of us, I would say many of us, worry about what others think of us. And so we place an emphasis on, on all these externals, what we drive, where we live, what we wear. Yeah, I was always amazed in, in the South African context. Every now and then we would go and do some mission work into really impoverished areas uh, where houses were broken down, many homes were lean-tos, and every now and then we would pass a house that was just a complete ramshackle of a house, but in the driveway would be a brand-new BMW or Mercedes-Benz. And I was always, I don't understand, until the local pastor explained to us, well, you see, they, they live, uh, I mean, they work elsewhere. They want the people that they work with to think that they're something. They want the people that they work with to think that they've made it. And so they pour all their money that they don't really have into their car. And you and I might look at that and think, that's just absurd, but we do similar in other ways. We're worried about what people will say about us, and, and so we become deceitful. And that's what this couple do. They, they try and look like they're truly sacrificing. They try and look like they're truly generous, but they're not. And so this is why Ananias says, uh, sorry, this is why Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has fooled you? How is it that you think you can lie to the Holy Spirit? And so in his deception, so he finds destruction. Uh, uh, notice what Peter says, because this is the comparison with Barnabas. Peter says to Ananias, that land was yours. You didn't have to sell it. And in fact, even when you sold it, the money was yours. You didn't have to give it away. If you had come and given half and said, hey, here's half my money, we would have had a very different story on our hands. The problem is they deceived because they wanted to look like something. You know, I, I spoke about the cliche of churches always wanting your money. And I know we joke about that from time to time. The Bible makes it very clear. God expects us at some point to bring into the storehouse. God expects us at some point to be generous. But the Bible says God expects a cheerful giver. And so it's never about the amount because the amount is always going to be different. Some people, for various reasons, can give more than what others give. It, it, God doesn't look at that amount. Dare I say God doesn't care about the amount? God cares about what's going on in the heart. God always looks at the heart. God longs for, God loves a cheerful giver, one who is determined what they can give and who gives with thankfulness. Yes, sometimes, for some of us, God will prompt us by the Holy Spirit to give in a sacrificial way where there is a little portion of our hearts kind of going, God, that's, that's, that's a lot. I don't know if I can afford that. And God says, all I'm calling for you is to trust me. I will provide. For some reason, God doesn't do that for everyone. It's not about the giving. It's about what takes place in our hearts. And this is what's happened with Ananias and Sapphira. Their hearts have been hardened, and so they lie, not just to people, but they try and lie to God as though that's possible. And so that deception, as I said a moment ago, leads to their destruction. 
Ananias drops down dead. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in, and Peter knows. So Peter gives her an opportunity to come clean. Peter gives her the second chance because God gives us second chances all the time. But even in that second chance, she continues the deceit. And in her deceit, she also drops dead. Now, again, this account is not given to us to make us think like, oh, goodness, God is just waiting for me to mess up so he can kill me. And, and you know what? I'm just waiting for Brian to take the offering so I can give everything and live. No, not at all. God doesn't kill us when we get it wrong. God gives us an example to show us how we should live and how we should respond. But God always offers us a second chance. In fact, God gives us a third, a fourth, a fifth. He continually offers us grace and forgiveness. But I think what Luke is doing by giving us this account is to remind us if we keep on in deception, if we keep on with a hard heart lying and trying to deceive God, there will come a point. And maybe that point won't be until I die and I stand before God in judgment. And that's when I will discover just how hard my heart had become. Because we had this appearance of loving God, we didn't really love God. Ananias and Sapphira gave the appearance, but their heart was in the wrong place. They didn't truly trust. They didn't truly believe that God would care for their needs. Even though they had the witness, they had the testimony of others who were in need and God provided, they didn't trust and they cared more about looking good in the sight of others than before God. Of course, God expects you and I to be generous. Our God is a generous God. He gave himself for us. Jesus Christ offered himself for us so that we would be reconciled to our heavenly Father. This is why Jesus went to the cross. And this is why Jesus gives this witness message to the disciples, to remind us just how generous God is. And God says to us, I expect you to be generous in what you do. So what do we do with this account? How do we respond to this? Well, I think as we read it, yes, we immediately acknowledge there will always be two types of Christians there will always be those Christians who truly trust and truly love and who are generous in all their dealings. And there will always be those Christians who, who try and just look the part. Those people in our churches, in fact, I've heard some preachers call them carnal Christians. Those who want to look like they know and look like they do, but their hearts are in the wrong place. I don't know where your heart is. It's not my job to judge. It's not my job to decide. That's God's job, and he will do that. But Luke says to each one of us, where do you find yourself? How will you live? Will you live in trusting God with generosity? Will you just try to play the part, trusting in yourself? And Luke makes it clear who we should be like. We should be like Barnabas, the son of of encouragement. 
You see, Barnabas saw God at work. Barnabas understood that was the goal. The gospel on the ground spreading through him giving. Some of you know the name Jim Elliot, the martyred missionary. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The possessions you have, if they possess you, you're not taking them to the grave. You can't keep those. They will fade like dust, just like you will fade like dust. And so Jamiliet reminds us, we can't keep those things, but we can give them. And as we give, so we get Christ. So we find grace. In fact, what Jim Elliot is doing is he's really just quoting Luke chapter 17 and Matthew chapter 16. There's a verse in both of those that read, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. In fact, Matthew spells it out a little more. Matthew says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, that's Jesus, whoever loses their life for me will find it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You know, this Thanksgiving, as you share and as you express thanks, I pray that at some point you will think about your possessions and you will hold your hand out in a sense and maybe in your hand hold your car, your house, whatever possession it is. And I pray that at some point you will say, God, this is yours. What would you have me do with this? How will this bring your gospel to the ends of the world? Let's pray together. Jesus, as we read your word, so we are confronted with our own our own materialism, our own selfishness, our, our own lack of faith. As we have, as we amass, as we store, we think that our possessions, our money, our wealth, our homes and fields, whatever else we have, we think that by that we will be secure. Yet God, your word reminds us, it is only you who holds us in the palm of your hand, who will keep us secure. And Father, I pray that this morning, as we read through this account in Acts, that you would challenge us by your Spirit, that we would begin to see the things we have come from you. You've entrusted them to us, and you entrust them in such a way that we're called to be good stewards of them. But they're not ultimately for us. They're ultimately for you and for your gospel, for the witness of Christ in a world that desperately needs him. And Father, I pray that even right now, your Holy Spirit would be prompting each one of us. What is it you would have us do? How is it you would have us live and respond? 
And let us not do what we do for appearance. Let us not do it because we just want to look good in front of others. Let us do it because we worship you. And when we come, when we give, when we bring offerings, tithes, whatever the case might be, let it not be out of some duty, out of some sense of obligation, but let it be done with joyful thanksgiving because it's from you and for you. We thank you, Jesus. May your kingdom come and your will be done. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.